If you've got your Bibles, go to uh, Genesis chapter 28. That's where we'll be this morning, and I'll uh, read from this chapter in just a minute. I'll start in verse 10, but I wanted uh, to let you know, so today, um, October 31st, 2021, 504 years ago, uh, the event that sparked the Reformation, or at least that's how the legend goes, that uh, Martin Luther, there in uh, Wittenberg, Germany, um, had his 95 theses nailed to the door in Wittenberg, and um, it was that that his students took and had uh, published and sent around, and it, it began a movement that then four years later leaded, uh, lead, led to uh, Martin Luther being um, excommunicated from the church and living in exile for, uh, for many years. Uh, translated the Bible during that time, taught his students. But he, um, he is a man whom God used. Uh, we are, in many ways, if you are not uh, Catholic, you are Reformed in the sense that you have been born out of this Reformation that we remember. And... Uh, in honor of Martin Luther, I went to the Luther Insult Generator, and I'm, I've worried about saying that because I know some of you now will spend the next hour on your phones looking at the Luther Insult Generator, but if you'll just wait until the end, I, I promise you it'll still be there, and then you can waste your whole afternoon reading insults from Martin Luther, but here are a few he uh, wrote in one letter to a man named Latimus, and he said, You're full of poisonous refuse and insane foolishness against a man named Hanswort. He said, I think that if you were alone in the field, an angry cat would be enough to scare you away. This he said to the Pope. May God punish you, I say, you shameless, barefaced liar, devil's mouthpiece who dares to spit out before God, before all the angels, before the dear son, before all the world, your devil's filth. If you were wondering why the Catholic Church didn't like Martin Luther... said this, if you perhaps look for praise and would sulk or quit what you're doing if you do not get it, if you're of that strike, dear friend, then take yourself by the ears, and if you do this in the right way, you will find a beautiful pair of big, long, shaggy donkey ears with which to pull. Luther said some things poignant for us, though. So nothing's easier than sinning. Human nature's like a drunk peasant. Lift him into the saddle on one side, over he topples on the other side. Luther talked about prayer this way. 
Oh, if I only could pray the way this dog watches the meat. All his thoughts are concentrated on the piece of meat. Otherwise, he has no thought, wish, or hope. Luther said something about all of us that I think is a good transition into our passage today. He said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man or woman is nothing, God can make nothing out of them. See, from the, from the moment we're born, or really the moment that we're conceived, we're, we're pushing against the story of God. We're, we're pushing the story of God into the background of our lives. See, what we, what we don't realize or what we realize and don't want to be true or what we know is true and we don't want to accept is that God has written a story for all of our lives. He's written all of our days. He has a purpose for us, and that purpose includes folding us into His story and what He's doing throughout history. And if something radical doesn't happen to us, to, to wake us up, we're destined for a tragic ending in this life and in the life to come. In many ways, this is the story of Jacob. We've been looking at this series titled The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we're at Jacob this morning in Genesis chapter 28. The son of Isaac and the grandson of Abraham. And what you find is this grandson of Abraham, this grandson of a man who had faith and was called by God, this grandson has probably heard all about God but doesn't really know God for himself. And up to this point in his life, in Genesis 28, he's made a series of bad decisions that is going to leave him on the run, estranged from his family, and alone from everybody in the world. And what we find, if we run headlong into this truth, is that your past doesn't disqualify you from experiencing God's grace. That if Genesis 28 is about anything, it is about the absolute, extravagant, unconditional, unsought grace of God. And we are going to see in this passage God overwhelm Jacob with his grace. God show up and say, Jacob, you're trying to do your own story, but I have already written a story for you. And overwhelm him. With grace. Listen, listen to me or follow along with me as I read Genesis chapter 28. I'm going to start in verse 10. It's a famous story. If you know Genesis or you know anything about the life of Jacob, I'll tell you right on the outset it is one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. And this is how 
it is recorded. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you. And will keep you wherever you go, and you will bring and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. The name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You would, would you bow with me? Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand these words, to, to see them and to hear them, that your spirit would be working in our hearts and our minds. Father, that your, uh, your word that is living and active would have its way with us this morning. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, Jacob, we discovered last week, he's a child of promise. He's a child of the blessing. And these were blessings that were promised by God, and he was meant to inherit them. He was a twin. His twin Esau came first, and then Jacob right on his heel, in fact, grasping at his heel. It would have, in the custom, given Esau the birthright, but the birthright was to be Jacob's. The blessing was to be Jacob's. 
And I think it's very likely Jacob knew all this. He probably knew the prophecy of his birth and the testimony of God's word through Abraham and through Isaac. He, he was in a line of promise, but he had a problem. Knowing who God is or knowing what God wants for your life is not enough. See, Jacob had a problem, and he had a problem since he was conceived, and it followed him around after he was born and after he was a teenager and after he became an adult and while he's on the run here in Genesis 28. And his problem is a problem that he inherited. The problem is sin. And the truth is we're all born with the same problem that Jacob had. We come out of the womb and we are in competition against God. And it is, it is our nature not to take hold of God. It is in our nature rather to grasp for everything else in this world but God. The world that Jacob's broken into is, uh, the world that Jacob's born into is broken even though he's born into a family chosen by God, the chosen people. He's, broken into, he's born into a world that's broken and a family that's broken and a world that operates in direct opposition to God. And, and what Jacob had done up to this point in his life is that he'd made choices to pursue temporary blessings by temporary means. And he was in danger of missing the eternal story that God was weaving into his life. In verse 10, in fact, we're told Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. And the reason he's doing that is he's having to flee this promised land. This land that was to be his. The land of his grandfather and the land of his father. And he was going to actually follow the direct route that... that Abraham had followed to come into the land. He's just going to take it backwards. He's going to go almost 500 miles north to a place called Haran. Out of the promised land, deep into what's modern day Syria, to where Abraham still had family. His mom's brother, Rebecca's brother Laban, was there. And he was fleeing because he had cheated his brother, lied to his father. And his brother Esau wasn't a man you wanted to mess with because he was out for blood. He's running for his life. And in fact, what's happening is he's leaving the place God had promised because he'd procured it in a way that threatened his life. The birthright was his, the blessing was his, but he went about getting those things in his own timing, in his own ways, through his own schemes. And because of that, everything he gained had become a threat to his life and he was on the run. And in 28.11 it says, and he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. And you get this idea that he left Beersheba and he left there on a dead run because he travels 50 miles north. We find out later it's Bethel is where he lands. 
50 miles, which would have been twice the length of travel, travel for a normal day. He literally was running for his life. The sun goes down. He lands at Bethel. He comes to a place. says he takes one of the stones of the place. He put it under his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep. And what you find here is that he is all alone. See, typically the story of Jacob, the stories we'll see of Jacob, he's always somebody else, whether it's Esau or whether it's Laban or whether it's his wives or whether then it's Esau again. There's always someone else in the story. There are a few times in Jacob's life where you find that he is all alone. And this is where he is. And there's probably not a person in this room that hasn't walked that long, lonely road at some point in their life. Chasing after the blessing, chasing after success, whether you catch it or not, the moment fades. You find yourself alone just like him under the big night sky with a rock under your head trying to make sense of what's just happened. See, I'd argue that at this point, he's still scheming. It's what he does. It's in his nature, clinging to his own craftiness. There's no evidence of a man here who laid his head down that night crying out to God or seeking help. Just a man on a lonely journey. Well, in 12 through 15, something fascinating happens. Really, nothing short of miraculous, and I don't want you to miss this. He falls asleep, and so far in Genesis, when a man falls asleep, God does something pretty amazing. He did it with Adam. He, does it, he did it with Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, and he's going to do it here. God is going to show up. God is going to bestow grace. And I think we're meant to believe Jacob here is near the end of his rope. He doesn't really have any idea where he's going to. He knows exactly what he's running from. You find out later he doesn't know how he's going to support himself. He doesn't know, you know, if he'll ever, ever come back to the land. He thinks he's probably going to be exiled forever, ever. But either way, you realize that this is a man that laid his head down on a rock this night in a place that was called Luz, and the last thing on his mind was, I'll bet that God's grace shows up in my life tonight. And what happens is God comes down. It says he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached the heavens. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And I don't look, some take this ladder and they say, look, this is what God did is he threw Jacob a lifeline. I mean, Jacob's there drowning, throws the ladder down. Jacob, go ahead, climb up to me. Rescue yourself. I've provided the way. Just start climbing. You see, I think, unfortunately, this ladder becomes this 
default in our mind that this is the best that God's going to do for us when we find ourselves having walked away from him away from him or walked into things we knew we shouldn't have walked into the best we can hope is that God will drop us a rope and that we can climb our way back up the imagery here though is exactly the opposite it's not a ladder that that God beckons Jacob to come climb. It's a ladder in which God himself descends. You see, I mean, this is what grace is. The grace is God coming to Jacob. God's descending. He was pursuing. And there's no, absolutely no human reason we can suggest that Jacob was deserving of this grace. God comes down. And he's going to speak, and he's going to give Jacob his word and his promise. And what's Jacob doing? He's laying under the night sky, exhausted from running all day, his head propped on a rock and drool coming out of his mouth. That's what he's doing. He's receiving. God's giving. He's going to receive. See, that's the beautiful truth about grace. It's a beautiful truth about the pursuit of God on you in your life. It's called grace. Grace is God's free and unmerited favor, unconditioned. It's shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. That's who grace is for. Guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. And it is the love of God shown to those who are unlovely. It is God reaching down to people who are in rebellion to him. That's grace. Spurgeon said, we hold that no man is is, uh, we hold that man is never so near grace as when he begins to feel he can do nothing at all. Our unworthiness. We think that disqualifies us from God's grace. When in fact what it does is it qualifies us See, God doesn't just come into your life despite your sin and misery and pain and brokenness and weakness. He comes because of it. And notice what he says to Jacob in verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it or, or, or it possibly be translated beside him. And said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, still right in the dead center of this promised land. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Which is interesting when he would talk about his offspring because Jacob doesn't even have a wife yet. This is a single guy that was living in his parents' basement. And he says, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and the north and the south. And in you, 
and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God shows up and introduces himself to Jacob. I think it was one of those unnecessary introductions. I think Jacob would have probably known exactly who he was. He had heard about God all of his life. And yet, up to this point, there's no evidence of him reaching out to God or crying out to God or praying to God. But Jacob here is encountering the God he knew about all of his life. He's encountering him for the first time. He's encountering God firsthand. And from this day on, Jacob would have his own story to tell about the day he met God. He's going to tell from this day on about the grace of God that he experienced firsthand. It would not have been sufficient for Jacob to merely or only heard stories from his father and his grandfather. They were good stories, miraculous stories, inspiring stories, personal stories. But Jacob needed to meet God firsthand. And let me just say, grandparents and parents, your children do too. Oh, they need to know about your faith. They need to hear about your faith. They need to know how you met God, how you've encountered God, how you've come to trust in his son Jesus. And they will need to trust in him firsthand as well. They will need to taste his grace for themselves. The only way you receive grace. Here's a couple of observations that Landy's sleeping on. says, I'm going to give it to you and your offspring. Even though this may be the last night Jacob will spend in the promised land that God's going to give him for 20 years. In the midst of fleeing from his sin and fleeing in fear and fleeing from danger, God says, don't worry, all this is yours. It's going to be yours. And it's a promise for Jacob to hold on to, to, to cling to. Jacob, where you're going is not your home. This is your home. This is your land. And you're going to have offspring like the dust, which means you're going to have descendants beyond your ability to number. I know, Jacob, right now you feel alone and estranged from your family, and no foreseeable future. You're probably worried Esau's going to catch you and end your life, but I need you to know this isn't the end of your story. In fact, the end of your story is magnificent. And whatever, no matter what it feels like tonight, tomorrow is the beginning of living a life that I have promised and guaranteed. Jacob, you are a blessed man. And to the point of that blessing, the blessing you gained by deceit, that blessing I planned for you all along. In the meantime, you're gonna, listen, there are some hard days ahead, Jacob. They're coming to you. But my will is going to be accomplished in your life No matter how you think you got here, 
Listen, I would say it to you. No matter how you think you got here, God's hand of providence has been on you all along. It's the beauty of God's grace in our lives. Now, notice verse 15. I want to make sure we see this, and then I'll show you a couple of more things. He says this in verse 15. He says, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Notice the promise. I'm I'm with you and I will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back. I will not leave you until I have uh, accomplished and and until what I have promised you comes. It's the essence of the promise. I don't know if you resonate with this. Too many believers, though, understand, uh, aren't able to grasp, cannot understand that this is what grace is means. There's too many believers, I think, live this legalistic fear that somehow you have to earn the presence of God. You have to keep God so happy that he doesn't go anywhere. You find yourself insecure about your position with God. You're unsure about his overwhelming grace. You spend your whole life looking at yourself, trying to measure up instead of being focused on God and walking in the promise of His grace. And you will not, you will not be truly free to love Him until you do. See, His grace brings freedom. His grace, it, it brings freedom. And then ultimately what happens is it produces this obedience. You, you begin to walk after him and seek after him. Not because you're scared he's going to leave you. Not because you're insecure that God's going to go away. But because you truly know his love and love him back. When you truly realize that the proof of all of this is the cross, that God sent his only son to the cross, and in the midst of Christ nailed to a tree, the weight of the world's sin gets heaped on him. All of your sin, all of mine, He's the one who experiences being separated from God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows that so you never will. Your sin separates the Father and the Son in the moment on the cross so that even in the midst of your Acts of sin, you will not be forsaken by God. God is with you. And he goes on to say, For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And it is a promise made by God to Jacob with his full life in view. His past 
his present, his future. It is an unconditional promise that God is not going anywhere. He will not leave Jacob. He will not, not until he has done what he promised. And God puts no condition on it. We know that Jacob clung to this promise his whole life. In Genesis 31, he, he, uh, God tells it to him again. Uh, in Genesis 35 and Genesis 48, Jacob lived with this promise the rest of his life. In fact, this promise, I will be with you, shows itself in even more brilliant color when Jesus is announced in Matthew's gospel and is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And at the end of Matthew's gospel, you find Jesus saying, I am with you until the end of the age. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm going away, but I'm sending my spirit. You are mine. Nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Paul writes in Romans 8, nothing, not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Nothing. That thing that comes to your mind even now that you think separates you from God, it does not. Now notice how Jacob responds. 16 and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And I'm telling you, that is the story of every one of our lives. It's the way crisis in our life often works. We discover that God was right there in the midst of it and we didn't even know it and we would not have guessed it. At the moment that we felt the furthest from hope, we find we are in the presence of God. That's why people who walk through very difficult times, very lonely times, times they would never choose and they would never choose again, But so many of them that are believers come out and say, you know what, I wouldn't choose it again, but I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. The place that you come to that causes you to stop running and to stop fighting and you embrace this moment that you're in and you realize you've run headlong into the grace of God. Verse 17, and he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. 
Genesis chapter 11, mankind came together in Babel to try to build a tower to God. God has to come down. He foils that plan. What you find is that we cannot build our way to God. We cannot climb our way to God. It is God who must come down to us. God is the one who provides the gate. In fear and wonder and awe, Jacob is overwhelmed. <laughs> a rock for a pillow, no shelter, exposed to the elements, in danger of who knows what. He would have gotten on Google or Yelp and rated that place about one star. But it'd be like going to bed in a Motel 6 and waking up in the Biltmore Mansion. He met God. He heard from God. Saw heaven open up. This glimpse of life from God's perspective. You know, sometimes we sing songs. And it, not a lot here, but we do. I mean, we sing. We, you know, we, we, we kind of casually boldly sing, you know, songs to God like, I want to see your face. And we sing it like seeing God's face, you know, it would be like a beautiful sunset or a field blooming in the springtime or a, you know, a perfectly crisp morning on the opening day of deer season. That's not how it is. Every time someone encounters God in Scripture, I mean, really encounters Him, they're undone. You know what Jacob's doing in these verses? He's worshiping. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone, he put the head that he'd had under his head, and he set up a pillar and poured oil on top of it. This is reverence, it's, it's Deep respect, it's, it's worship. Having met God, everything changes. No longer is he hiding. He's in the sanctuary. 19, he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. He named it Bethel. Literally, he names it the house of God, where he met God, he heard God's word. And the whole point of the story, if you were looking at it and you were reading it in the original, isn't the name of the place. In fact, he continues to call it the place, the place, the place, the place. It was where he was hearing from God. There was nothing special necessarily in the name. It represented where he heard from God. Firsthand, he'd seen him, he'd known him, he'd tasted his grace. Probably told you for me in my life, my Bethel, my my place of God, where I where I met God is this is this green Bible, this old NIV 1984 version green Bible that's held together by duct tape that sits on my desk, and it's where the means by which I truly met God, heard from Him personally and heard his word and began to see him for myself firsthand in the pages. I mean, I, I can tell you, I, 
and we thumb through those pages, there's this, these memories of encounters with God. Sometimes I wrote in the margin. Sometimes I spilled coffee all over the pages. It's where I met him. In his word. It's where I heard from him. In his word. And we live in a time in history and believing that God has revealed himself in his word. We, we all have access to God who has come down. So we don't worship the Bible, but we worship the God we meet and hear and see in the Bible. And he's come down. Now, real quickly, two or three verses that might make you uncomfortable. They've made the history of the church uncomfortable. This is what it says. And then Jacob made a vow, verse 20, saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I may come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And you read that and you think, wait a minute. God shows up in Jacob's dream when he's alone, pours out grace to him, comes down from heaven, makes himself known, makes promises that I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Jacob wakes up and goes, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll make a deal with you, God. If, if you do all those things you said and, you know, provide me some bread to eat, then I'll let you be my God. It's kind of how it reads. Let me say this. The condition that Jacob puts on God is no condition at all. God is already his God. You might think about it this way. Be like my children saying to me, listen, if you've, you know, my 16-year-old coming, say, I'll tell you what, I've thought about this. If you feed me, clothe me, give me a place to sleep, keep me safe, make sure I can learn to read and write, then you can be my parent. That's a ridiculous condition. This is not an absence of Jacob's faith. In fact, I think it's, it's this picture of where Jacob's faith is. It's an immature faith in God. He doesn't yet fully understand all that it means that God's grace is unconditional. He doesn't have to barter for it. He's trying to barter with God for what he already has unconditionally. And you and I do it all the time. God, if you'll just do this thing, then I will. Jacob knew in his head all about God. It's still going to have to make its way to his heart. And the rest of Jacob's story will be about God transforming a guy who continues to be broken, but who continues to encounter God's grace. It's amazing. When you go to the New Testament, Jesus is going to call a guy uh, named Philip. In John 1, 
the end of John 1, Jesus has just called Philip to follow him. Philip runs in excitement, and then he goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. And he says to Nathaniel, we found him. Nathaniel's not convinced. He heard this Jesus guy was from Nazareth. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. Jesus shows up, and Nathaniel approaches him. Jesus looks right into his heart, and he says, you're a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Funny, the word deceit there, it's meant to take you back to Jacob, the deceiver. Whoa. Wait a minute, how do you know me? Jesus said, oh, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip even found you. Well, it was enough for Nathaniel, and right then and there, he knows, he knows, and he proclaims, Jesus to be the Son of God, the King of Israel, and Jesus said to him, you haven't seen anything yet. And he looks at Nathaniel and says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And all of a sudden you hear it, don't you? Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, and he's telling us, you want to know what the ladder was? I'm the ladder. One foot in heaven, one foot on earth. Fully God and fully man. Who later will say, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except by I would say to you this morning, if you've not been awakened, haven't come to the end of yourself, haven't fallen exhausted and found yourself still and quiet enough that you can be overwhelmed by the grace of God, the grace of the God who is pursuing you. Maybe the grace of the God you are running from and finding out that you couldn't have gotten away from him. You've been running headlong into him all your life. The response this morning is faith. To believe, to, to believe God for the sacrifice of his son and, and, and his grace and to receive that this morning by faith. It simply means to trust Jesus with your life, your eternity with the rest of your story. If you are a believer this morning, if you find yourself in rebellion trying to write your own story, even though you know better, then here in just a moment when I pray, bow your head, ask the Spirit to reveal to you sin to confess, and believe by faith that if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin, cleanse you from all unrighteousness, you can walk out of here clean this morning. Basking in God's grace that has never left you. That the scales would come off your eyes and your heart this morning and turn to him.
Lee Strobel said at the end of Case for Christ. He said, to be honest, I didn't want to believe that Christianity could radically transform someone's character and values. It's much easier to raise doubts, manufacture outrageous objections, to consider the possibility that God could actually trigger a revolutionary turnaround in such a depraved and degenerated life. But the truth is that God could have forgiven my past and given me assurance of heaven and yet kept me at arm's length. Could have made me a mere servant. It would be more than I deserved, but his grace is far more outrageous than that. He radically, outrageously calls you beloved. And that, my friends, is your true self in Christ. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd take these words and cement them into our hearts. I pray you'd draw us into Jacob's story at whatever place we need to be drawn into this morning. But that, Father, none of us would walk out of here not having seen and believed all over again how outrageous and radical and loving your grace is towards us. We pray this the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is the latter and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. If you would, would you stand with me? We'll be dismissed. Now may the God who hears your cries, listens to your prayers, be the shelter above you, the tower around you, the rock beneath you today, and all the days until Jesus returns. Amen. You are dismissed.